Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at www.mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, returning to share pediatric wisdom about how to help children of all ages get that necessary sleep, is Dr. Michelle Stanford, a pediatrician from the Denver suburb of Aurora, Colorado. Now, we interviewed uh, Michelle, Andrew, and I uh, a couple months ago on common early childhood medical problems. And off air, you both thought that sleep would fill an entire episode. And I'm thinking, how is that even possible? But I have since learned with preparation that was given to me by Michelle on what to read, we will at least fill an episode. So Andrew, what insights do you have that make this such an important topic? You know, sleep is so, it's important for everybody, but it's most salient, I think. You you think about it the most in your life when you have a newborn baby, usually (laughs) your first newborn baby. Everybody would love more sleep. It's never on your mind more when you got a newborn. And so consequently, you know, Dr. Stanford is a pediatrician in family medicine. I get to do some pediatrics as well. And we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to get newborns to sleep. And it's actually a pretty controversial thing. That was something that was new to me. Uh, and then in meeting and talking to people, there are so many different schools of thought, but ultimately the goal is that the baby is happy and healthy and grows well, and the parents do too. And I know, Tom, you you had a story about oh, you were trying yes. to get your kids yes. to sleep, right? <laughs> well, early uh, in marriage, we were teaching natural family planning for an organization that also put out books by a pediatrician, uh, William Sears, on something called attachment parenting. And I'm thinking, well... I want to be a good Catholic. I want to be a good dad. I don't know what this looks like. And while a lot of this makes sense, they say, well, it's the best way to love your child, which is basically baby-led nursing, baby-led sleeping when they want, baby sleeping with you. And we did some variety of that for our first five children. And my wife, far more than me, was sleep-deprived for a lot of years. And then at the age of 42 came twins. And we were both thinking, there is no way that this is going to work, this non-planned plan that we had been experiencing. What are we going to do? I sent up a prayer to heaven, and as she was in the hospital, right after delivering the twins, somebody said, you got to read this book. And I got the book. I read the book. It saved our lives because none of our other children slept through the night until at least a year old. These two were sleeping, these twins, by the age of two to three months. We thought it was a miracle. And uh, it was some form of sleep training of children through this book. Uh, it was a, one of the Baby Wise books. And uh, I'd never heard of it before, but it helped our family to function when it could have been a disaster. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so interesting. So Tom had mentioned two common things there, the sleep training and then also attachment parenting. We're going to dive into Dr. Stanford with each of those because, you know, one one of the things that I've identified is that everybody is already doing something. And frequently it's something you learn from your family or your friends. And uh, it's a very personal decision because it's your baby. You love them. You want to be doing your best and you are doing your best. But the advantage that pediatricians have, like Michelle, she's going to tell us about the actual data. So when you have a baby, you have a sample size of one. And (laughs) when in doubt, you pour your heart and sweat and tears into that baby and you pray that it helps. Um, That's what I do. And with Michelle, she's got the advantage of having a sample size of mm, tens of thousands of babies. And she gets to see people do it both ways. And she's abreast to the medical data. And she's going to introduce that stuff to us. Kind of to set the stage, we wanted to highlight just a couple of, of general ground rules. People frequently ask me, like, how often or how much time should people spend asleep? And so to, to identify that early on, especially in relation to newborns, it's normal and expected for babies to sleep about 16 hours a day, about eight hours during the day and eight or nine hours at night. That's like a cat. 
It is like a cat. <laughs> it is like a cat. So I, I get to tell that to people and frequently it's met with shock and awe because they say <laughs> my, my baby sleeps somewhere on the order of five to six hours uh, broken throughout a 24 hour period. And I sleep like one to two. And oh. uh, if that's you, you are not alone, but that is also not normal. And, and we hope to help you in particular as babies get older, up to two years old, when a baby's two years old, we expect them to sleep about 11 hours instead of 16. And then as kids get into the teenage years, that's when we start getting to the normal eight to 10 hours. But it's very, very expected and common, even through the adolescent years, to require 12 hours of sleep at night. So those are kind of the benchmarks. And another topic that we kind of wanted to just introduce, we're going to talk about with Michelle, is the circadian rhythm. Tom, we talk about that a lot, don't we? Are those the insects that come back every 17 years, the circadians? <laughs> yes. I thought it was the Star Trek people who spoke that other language, right? <laughs> but you're the Star Trek guy. So <laughs> the circadians, yes. But the circadian rhythm, named for Dr. Circadian, I think, I don't know. Tom probably knows, actually. But uh, this is your body's cycle for regulating awake and sleep. And it affects many daily rhythms, including core body temperature, your cortisol level, which people like to talk about, and your appetite even. And during wakefulness, the homeostatic drive promotes initiation of sleep. It, it kind of builds up throughout the day so that at the end of the day, ideally, you're tired and ready to go to bed. Interestingly, and this resonated with me, is that the, the circadian rhythm naturally is longer than 24 hours. And so your body- That's yeah, like 25, isn't it? It is. It's its just between 24 and 25. They did and studies in caves. They had people, yes. they sent them down caves. Were you going to talk about that? Uh, my no, you, no, you'd go with the caves, Tom. You got No, it. And, and they would live like uh, on a 25-hour schedule and the people up above would not tell them how much time it elapsed. Yes. And it was so funny to see how, how they lived. Well, and that resonates with me immediately because how many of our listeners, including myself- find ourselves wanting to stay up late at night and then immediately regretting it in the morning when we have to get up early. Yes. But yes. I, there's there's a natural preponderance to get out of whack. And uh, I learned a new German word, uh, Zeitgeber. Have you heard oh, that one before? I haven't heard it. <laughs> I've never either, but I looked up how to pronounce it and that's what Google said. But these are little uh, data points that your body looks at to help anchor your slightly asymmetric circadian rhythm to the 24-hour clock. And those include especially daylight. So if yes. there's daylight around you before you actually wake up, that's going to shift your circadian rhythm. And then if there's lots of lights before you go to bed, that's also going to shift your circadian rhythm. So that gets into some of our sleep hygiene tips, which Michelle will talk to us about. So oh, yes. Before we get into all that, Michelle, this is going to be a great in interview. I, I love talking to her. But yes. before we get to that, Tom, I know you have an interesting sleep-related oh, yes. trivia question. Yes. I, I loved running across this category, parents' sleeping position. Because when the children sleep, oftentimes the parents are trying to sleep. So in a 2019 survey of 1,000 adults on the Casper blog, which has something to do with sleep, which of the following was the most common sleeping position for couples? This is multiple choice, five possibilities. Was it A, spooning? Sorry, I can't draw a picture of that on the radio. B, <laughs> back to back. C, intertwined. D, no contact, like a virtual medical visit. Or E, face to face. So was it spooning? back-to-back, -back, intertwined, no contact, or face-to-face. -face. You're going to have to wait for the fascinating answer till the end of the show. But right after the break, we'll be back with Michelle Stanford on how to get your babies to sleep here on Dr. Doctor. We now have in the virtual room with us Dr. Michelle Stanford. Michelle got her bachelor's in biology at Colorado State, her MD at University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, and she did her pediatrics residency at Children's Hospital of Colorado. She is now a private practice pediatrician in Aurora, Colorado, and in the Catholic Medical Association, she will be the next two years vice president, and she is the state director for the CMA in Colorado. She's the mother of three children, so she will be an expert not only as a doctor, but as a mother and the wife of Philip. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, Michelle. Thanks, Tom. Michelle, Tom and I were sharing some of our stories about 
as soon as you have a baby, everything changes. And the first thing that changes is you don't sleep. <laughs> um, what was your experience when you first had a newborn baby trying to get him to sleep? So I would say the two, two takeaways I had was first, residency was nothing for sleep deprivation. <laughs> <laughs> Parenting, much more sleep deprivation. So, um, you know, you thought you could be prepared, but no. Um, the second was kind of plan versus reality. I think that you, you, I learned how to do many of these things, um, but until I had children, it was different. And sleep was certainly one of those things. And, and, and just crying, how much babies cry, and you really have to be flexible. So those were probably my biggest takeaways. And how, how much did your pediatric training influence how you and your husband handled bedtimes compared to what most of us would learn from our parents or our friends, you know? So I think initially, um, it, it really, I, I had this idea of how it was going to go. And, and then when it practically, when I was having to learn how to you know, teach my children to sleep and just getting, being sleep deprived myself, uh, were certainly two different things, but, and I kind of changed as I had more children too, just, I think initially I was thinking, oh, was, I could be very rigid and it was going to happen magically. Um, but as <laughs> I had more kids, I realized even that, even how the child is their temperament and, you know, so it definitely did that. But I, I knew from the beginning, from my training that I wanted a routine and that that was going to be part of it. So it definitely shaped it. But I think sometimes I was hard on myself because I felt I had to do it a certain way because I was a pediatrician. Um, but, you know, it, it made it maybe more practical and helped me under, be understanding to patients. I bet you see a lot of really anxious, nervous, scared, helpless feeling patients who come in with or parents of patients who come in with questions, please, and even ransom demands before they will release you until you can tell them the magic to helping their kids sleep. What are the most common questions you get from such parents about their kids' sleep? You know, it runs a, a range. Some people will ask and others won't, but it, it is probably one of the most common uh, complaints or, or questions that we get in the office. I try to have a little bit of a proactive approach and, and in the first couple of weeks talk about ways that they can help them, their child have good sleep habits. And, and then as they ask, I will. I, I think from the very beginning, I was probably too pushy to some parents about how this is how you can get your child to sleep. But the parent also has to be ready, has to want um, to change what they're doing. And so I think over time, I've set up the guidelines early and then answered questions as they go along or as they develop problems. Uh, you said it exactly. I think the parents have to be ready. And that's one of our hopes, I think, with this episode is that for people who are on the fence, who are maybe not brought it up in, in a doctor's visit before, use this as a foundation. And I, I like to remind parents, you know, you are not a better parent just because it is harder for you. It, you know, <laughs> just because it's more painful does not mean that your child's going to benefit more. And uh, sometimes I think people think it's like, a Catholic thing, the harder I do, I'm going to offer it up. But that's not exactly the case. And part of that is from what we know about infant brain development. So may, maybe, Michelle, you could tell us a little bit about the infant brain and how it's wired for wake and sleep cycles. Yeah. So uh, when they're first born, uh, you know, a lot of their sleep, and, and I think this is kind of how it leads to problems sometimes, is let, you know, they don't have a lot of body fat. And so they really do wake up frequently because they don't, they're not able to go long between feedings. They also do have different sleep wake cycles than we do. They're shorter. They're um, not as long as we, ours are. And they really, you don't really have adult type sleep until kids are probably five. So that, that combined with initially that needing to eat so frequently, sometimes habits develop because they end up almost always learning to either nurse to sleep, take a bottle to sleep, and those habits develop. So in the first two months, I've read that we shouldn't expect any child to normally sleep through the night. What, what would be normal and healthy in the first two months to three months of life, Michelle? So as long as a baby is gaining weight adequately, they can go longer at night, but you're right. They generally don't sleep through the night. There actually is 
a kind of a body weight at like 12 pounds when they have enough body fat to go probably longer than six to seven hours. But if they're gaining weight, you don't wake a sleeping baby. So if they go longer than six hours, it's fine. But you re- they really do need to have enough body fat to go a longer length. So what should parents be doing in those first two months so that they can get the rest that they need and baby can be healthy? So consistency is key for sure. So making sure that they're trying to develop some consistency around sleep. So with a routine with their sleep, I I always talk about this. uh, I think this potentially is from BabyWise, but it's eat, awake, sleep. So babies have um, generally will eat. And they kind of, after this is newborn babies and younger babies, they'll eat and they kind of have a little slumber. They're tired after they've eaten, but then they're awake and they have their biggest awake period. And then they'll have maybe a 10 minute, maybe a 30 minute wake cycle, and then they'll be tired and want to go to sleep. So if parents can kind of watch for those cues, because what often happens when they're acting tired an hour after they've eaten a parent might think they're hungry again and they'll feed them and then they'll be feeding them to sleep and they'll overeat. And and they'll eat like half an ounce each time. Correct. Correct. (laughs) And so um, while I I really do like BabyWise and establishing that routine, I personally had a hard time with BabyWise with my children. And I think a mom who breastfeeds has a little harder time with with BabyWise because you don't, if you don't have a very abundant milk supply, you may not be able to go exactly three hours for breastfeeding. Um, but that is part of the premises that you're, you know, getting that cycle and that routine um, for the baby. Well, let's talk about the, the two big schools of thought on, on getting kids to sleep. You know, one of them is some form of training or you know, cry it out. Uh, and the other one is the attachment parenting. What, what is meant by the term attachment parenting that, you know, Dr. William Sears popularized? So, I mean, attachment with your children is actually a very good thing, right? Children should be attached to their parents. I think, in my opinion, it just takes it a little bit more to the extreme. And so it means that the baby will sleep, they'll co-sleep, and they'll be with the child pretty much all the time. And in general, it's meant that there's very minimal to no crying, which, you know, in the first four months of the baby's life, they do need all their needs met. They cry, they need picked up, and there really isn't a whole lot of crying around sleep. But the, that's the premise of attachment parenting. I should answer that question first. And, and what evidence is there to support that that's good for baby and or parents? So the evidence that was used to support this actually came out of an orphanage, and the orphanage was showing the children having poor attachment. And I think most of the criticism in the literature says that, you know, normal, good, healthy homes are very different from an orphanage where babies are not held most of the day. So I think that that's, that, that's you can't use that comparison. So there's, there's no other evidence besides that Romanian orphanage study? Correct. Well, and I think there's a a lot of the folks that I've talked to who are passionate about attachment parenting. It's less about being passionate about that and more about being against a a schedule or against a rhythm because they feel like they don't want to shut down communication with their baby. Is, Is that a fair thing to be afraid of? Um, you know, I think so. You do need to know babies need to be known, need to be heard and need to be loved. And so, and that is very important for them to learn those things. But I think it's like most things. I think you take a little bit of each, um, thing. And again, the baby, you have to know the baby a lot in the first few months when I'm talking to be, to parents about sleep, I just don't think it's always black and white. So if I get a baby who's very fussy or colicky, that baby probably might need to do a little bit of attachment parenting, actually. I mean, it, they're going to be held a lot more. And mm-hmm. they, they, so I think that that really matters too, um, depending on the baby's temperament. Michelle, is there any evidence that attachment parenting can be harmful? Um, not that I, not that I know of, Tom. Okay. Just wondering if it makes it harder for parents to sleep. Yes. Um, Sorry. 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 Yes. I mean, I I think there's that, that looks more when we look at the benefits of the methods that other methods. So with attachment parenting, 
you'll see sometimes in my office, I'll see, I mean, I'm sure Andrew could too. I will see some parents who uh, they're not sleeping. <laughs> and so if they're not sleeping, then they're, they have an increased risk of depression and just their emotional ability. I, I was going to ask if there was any evidence to support attachment parenting as a method of NFP, because we talk about <laughs> different methods all the time. Uh, I don't know if there's residents listening and you might need a future uh, project. You could compare attachment versus non-attachment parenting and, and time till next child. But that might be a digression. I don't know. No, no. Yeah. I mean, it, every person is different. My third child was super colicky. And I, while I was more rigid with my first two, he, I did do some co-sleeping, but I actually slept worse because he was so fussy. That's the only way he would sleep. But I was so worried about co-sleeping that I didn't sleep. So I think there's so many factors that come into play. So the opposite of trying to prevent babies to cry, which is one of the goals of attachment parenting, is to allow a certain amount of crying, what opponents of that method would call crying it out, and what proponents would call sleep training. And you sent me a, some great information. And there's really three general categories of sleep training. What are those, Michelle? So the three different categories that I like to call it, rather than cry it out, or even not even sleep training, training to learn to self-soothe. So that, that's an important like quality to learn how to self-soothe. But the, the three different methods are extinction is what it's called. So meaning that you leave, you let the baby cry, and they cry until they fall asleep or they self-soothe. That's what I usually tell fa families. They cry until they learn how to self-soothe themselves and you don't come back in the room. The second method is called gradual extinction. So you go back five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then the third method is called extinction with parental presence. And that's where the parents in the room while they're crying. And usually they gradually move their chair farther and farther out the room. The biggest question when we talk about this with families is they'll tell me, how long is too long to cry? Wow. And really, the methods really don't work unless you allow the baby to cry until they fall asleep. Because what's happening during that crying is the baby is is sort of struggling to learn how can I soothe myself. Sometimes a baby will find a finger or a thumb and there'll be a, a, a thumb sucker or a finger sucker during that time because they've learned how to self-soothe that way. Um, I think of when I explained it that way, sometimes I'll compare it to riding a bike. Riding a bike is hard. They'll fall off. They'll scrape their knee, but you're going to get them right back on the bike. So I try to explain it to parents that they're teaching their child something. Hey, that's that's a very positive way of looking at it. Does that translate to anything beyond sleep? I'm just thinking hypothetically with other dropping the kid off for kindergarten, maybe. Yeah. You know. It does. It, there's there's a couple of different discipline books on discipline that talk much about self um, self soothing that a, a child can play by themselves. It's also like time in. So time in versus time out that you teach your child to, um, you know, desire good attention. So it, it's just a skill. So what evidence demonstrates that this is healthier for parents and babies if you do these self-soothing techniques? So there are uh, a couple of different studies that show both parental and child better well-being. So the parental uh, well-being is quite prominent that it in decreases maternal depression, postpartum depression, I think that just because the mom is sleeping better. And then the child studies show that the child is happier, the child is less fussy. And so both show that they've looked at some like longer term studies, like when children are older, and can show no difference in attachment and um, how the children did um, when they use the different methods. So when they're older, can you pick out which method they used or not necessarily? Not necessarily, just that if they're sleeping, I will tell you in any behavioral consult I get for kids, that doesn't matter what age they are. The first question I ask is, how are they sleeping? I mean, you can imagine, I, I joke that we, we are grumpy when we're tired. Um, <laughs> so that's the first thing that kids will act out when they're tired. Now that it, it sounds like that there's a lot of positives to doing the self-soothing technique training. How, you know, one of the things I get asked a lot is how long does it take or does it depend on the kid? How, if we've got to gird, gird our loins for this, how, how long is this going to take? 
So it will will definitely depend on the child. It'll also depend on, I think, between the three methods, which method is used. The no return method happens the quickest. The child learns how to self-soothe quicker, Um, usually three nights. And it literally is like clockwork by that third night. They cry two minutes and then they're done. Um, Now that's going to sleep. Often the nighttime awakenings might take another 10 days to go till they learn that pattern because that consistency of how you respond when they wake up is important. Um, And I think the gradual return probably takes five days. And then the parent in the room, I think that takes more like a week just because you're still present. And then eventually they have to not be in the room and they have to get used to that too. That sounds like torture for a parent. Like I, I, I agree. I personally tried every single different method for my kids. And I really, the gradual extinction was what I used for the most success. So if a parent comes to you and they're open to whatever you think is best, what do you tell them? Um, I will go through probably, it's usually about a 10 minute description of the gradual extinction and explaining how to do it and the persistence, the consistency. And then I think it's also important to explain to parents that just because you do this once, it doesn't mean you're never going to do it again. Because if a child gets sick, obviously you're going to respond to them differently because they're going to wake up. They're going to be not feeling well. If you travel and then they might sleep in a different bed or they might sleep with you, you have to always remember that consistency. And when they come back um, to, to do it again. So that it's, it's just so important to keep that consistency. And, And then final question for this half of the interview, how do the various methods of learning to sleep Uh, interact with whether a child is breastfed or bottle fed? That's a great question. So I think that it can, it both can be effective with bottle feeding. It's probably a little bit easier because you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about that really does matter for sleep training is a baby has to be growing and thriving well and be getting enough nutrition during the day. And so with a, a bottle, you know, and maybe even a pumped breast milk, you know how much volume they got in during the day. Some women, if they don't have um, as much milk supply, might have a little harder time, and it might be a little older age that that baby is old, um, able to go sleep through the night. And I, I think with breastfeeding, because it is so comforting, it is more likely for babies to develop that um habit of breastfeeding to sleep than it is with the bottle, although it happens in both situations. So is feeding to sleep a good thing, a bad thing, or just a different thing? So, I mean, it's what develops the habit of, uh, you know, either a bottle or breastfeeding to sleep. So that's why babies generally need to be sleep trained is the last memory you have before you fall asleep is what, you know, how, like our pillow. If I took away your pillow, you would have a hard time falling to sleep because it's kind of what we associate going to sleep. For a baby, it's generally feeding. That's a great segue into our next half. I want to talk more about, it almost sounds like habituation, developing good habits when we come back on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking about how to make your newborn baby go to sleep. For heaven's sakes, we need help. Uh, Michelle, one, one thing you had talked about is the developing of the baby learning to fall asleep right after feeding and, and how that, that can be playing a role here. Is there anything that has to do with uh, whether we're looking for the baby's sleep cues per se versus saying, hey, 7.30 is bedtime. We're going to go for it right now. So I would say that it's a combination of the two. When they're a newborn, you want to look for those cues. And uh, cues are, you know, looking for that cycle, like we talked about, eat, they're awake, then they usually sleep. And so there's usually a little restlessness. Um, When they're a little older, they'll rub their eyes. Anything to suggest they're getting tired. You want to start preparing a routine around sleep um, to put them down to sleep. 
and then that eventually will lead to, oh gosh, every day at this time or this time they're tired and you can have a schedule that you develop for them. Generally, kids don't get on a strict schedule for naps until they're a little bit older, I would say between four and six months. Um, but that looking for their cues can help lead to a schedule. And with cues, I guess the, the corollary to that are associations. And you suggest if I steal Tom's pillow, I can ruin his sleep tonight. Um, is there <laughs> anything I should do to support my baby's sleep? I mean, things people try, white noise, uh, swaddling the baby, um, darkening the room. Is that important? Yes, all of those things are, are helpful. So white noise, not really controversial, but as long as it's just white noise, you don't want to have music or a lullaby because that uh if you're using that to help them fall asleep, they're going to need that to fall back asleep again during the night. And you don't want um, noise in the background. Other White noise is actually okay because your brain's not thinking. But like, for example, the TV, sleeping with the TV on is not good. There are studies that show your brain is still active. So you don't want anything that your brain is really still concentrating on. But the dark room is good. Even at a young age, I'll tell parents to sit in the chair, read a book to them so that you're preparing the brain to say, I am getting ready to go into my bed and fall asleep so that that routine starts even at a young age. You asked about swaddling. I do think swaddling is very helpful for babies until they're rolling, then you have to stop that. But it's just another way to help them calm down. But whatever you can establish as your routine that the baby says, oh, okay, now they're going to put me in my bed and I'm going to fall asleep. So Michelle, SIDS has been in the news for decades, sudden infant death syndrome. What is it? And then we'll move into how can we reduce the risk of it? So SIDS, as you just saw, sudden infant death syndrome, what we don't know is exactly what causes it. We do know some things that can decrease the risk of SIDS. And most people hear the, it's called back to sleep campaign. So babies laying on their back is is very important. Um, Babies breastfeeding actually decreases the risk of SIDS. The parents' um, awake status, so alcohol consumption by parents increases the risk of SIDS. Um, smoking also increases the risk of SIDS for for babies. Um, bedding, so it, actually, I should say co sleeping, um, is another uh, risk. But it it alone is not a risk. It's really that associated with a parental who smokes, who has drinking, and then bedding on the the parent's bed if there's like big. Um, sheets or not sheets, big comforter sheets, like down comforter. That's what I'm looking for. Sorry. All of those things will increase a baby's risk. But that so, only applies to under four months of age. The the SIDS risk after four months is significantly um, decreased. In, in One of the resources you sent to Andrew and me, there was uh, an incredible graph showing SIDS risk increasing based on whether or not they share their parents' bed whether or not parents smoke, uh, drink alcohol, and whether they were bottle or breastfed. And it's amazing. In each category, at least in this resource, it showed that the risk, if if breastfeeding, smoking, and alcohol were the same, the risk was two and a half to 16 times more with bed sharing versus not bed sharing. And the highest risk was a bottle-fed baby where both parents smoke, the mother drinks, and they co-sleep. It was 340 times higher risk versus a baby that's breastfed, sleeps in the crib alone, and parents don't smoke or drink alcohol. I mean, that was astonishing to me, that kind of difference. What do you yeah. think? No, I mean, I think it's it's legitimate. You, it's hard to sort out which one of those risks is the highest, but I think that, um, you know, that for sure breastfeeding is obvious. Breastfeeding has so many other good resources as well for babies. Um, but then the, the parental not drinking, not smoking, um, and ideally in a crib. Yes. And, and back to sleep. Um, it was amazing. This one article, you said over 90% of SIDS cases in one study were sleeping on their bellies. So that sounds like it's even bigger yet. Belly sleeping has been a big thing with COVID and ICUs for adults. Oh, for adults. I did not know that. Proning. They call it proning. 
and it, it, it helps which parts of the lungs get, uh, but this is not the same thing. So we're not recommending it for babies. Yeah. You know, and I, I guess that's one question kind of as we touched on the different types of strategies, attachment parenting versus uh, non-attachment, more schedules, cried out type parenting. It, is there a room here for parents to find out what works best for them? Are there risks of sleeping on the belly minor enough that maybe people want to take those or are they severe enough that we really should not ever do that? I think for back to sleep, the the answer would be no, we shouldn't ever do that. I mean, when I talk to parents about whether it's co-sleeping, that's usually the main thing they're asking me about. Um, um, I, I don't know. I've probably had a couple parents ask me about belly sleeping and I'll just tell them, this is what the data shows. You have to make that your, your, you know, your own decision. And because, you know, that is how we make our own decisions anyway. So, um, but you know, when you have a baby who doesn't sleep, I know parents are desperate. <laughs> Right. And even in one of the sources you sent that laid out all the data, the, the woman who wrote it had a friend who said the only way that her life and her husband's life worked is when they had the baby sleeping in bed with them. Yeah. So the absolute risk is quite low. Even if the risk of co-sleeping is higher than not co-sleeping, the absolute risk is still very low. What are some comparable risks that we take every day, Michelle? Um, yeah, I would say riding your bike, wearing a seatbelt, <laughs> right. you know, things that I would come to mind. Right. Cause they prevent rare things and we all know it's safer to wear a seatbelt than not, but it's rare that we need it, but when we need it, we want it. So, uh, we're, we're doing risk assessments every day. So we're not saying everybody has to do this, but it sounds like you're good about letting parents know what, what the data says so they can decide. Correct. And I think that's where it comes back to the individual child, too. If you've got a colicky baby or a baby who has reflux or a milk allergy or any other medical um, problem, it, it can be really tough. It said that in these sleep-deprived parents, though, there was a far and away a worst possible position to sleep with your baby. Do you remember what that was? That that's should be avoided. <laughs> yes. On the couch, on your chest. <laughs> yeah. And, and how does that end up often happening unwittingly? Um, I think it's at 2 a.m. They're watching TV and, you know, the baby won't sleep and they fall asleep on the couch with the baby on their chest is what I would, you know, see. So that's definitely worth avoiding at all costs. So what's the big deal with the, the bumpers or the soft stuff in the crib? How, how important is that? Um, I think that if I had to risk assess bumpers, I would say is not a very big risk, but blankets, stuffed animals, things where, you know, a baby could potentially, their face could um, get, get suffocated in there would be a bigger concern. I know that's what they say about bumpers. I just don't feel, I've never seen that to be an issue. When's it safe for a baby to sleep in a bed alone instead of a crib? Um, in like a toddler bed. Yeah. At what age? So typically there's three years or if the baby's crawling out of the crib and then the crib becomes unsafe. I remember with our, our twins, uh, it was probably by the age of two, one would crawl out of his crib and up into the other twins crib. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and and they, they slept incredibly well when they were touching. So I don't know if that's a thing with twins or if it's dangerous with twins. What would you say? I don't think that that would be dangerous because they're sleeping in a crib and it's more the bed um, and a bigger person. And, you know, so I don't I don't think there's any increased risk in twins that I know of. M Michelle, another recommendation we see a lot, I think uh, the Academy of Pediatrics talks about the baby in the room, at least initially in the parents room. Tell us how to think about that and what are the, the boundaries of that recommendation? That's a very good question, Andrew. And I'll, there is so much... Um, uh, dissent, I would say, amongst general pediatricians when that recommendation came out. So it used to be um, at six months, between four and six months, we recommended that, that parents start thinking about um, baby's own room, own crib, rather than a bassinet or even the crib in their own parents' room. So the AAP changed that to waiting till 12 months. 
And there's lots of uh, comments in my pediatric journals where most primary care pediatricians completely disagree with that and don't feel like there's good evidence to make that recommendation. And in fact, a baby sleeps better. So does the parent generally when you get them in their own room. Um, and so I would disagree with the recommendation. When would be a good time to start that transition? Would you start them in their own room or, or keep them by you initially at least? I, I think that's probably a style issue for parents. The reason I think most people do is um, breastfeeding usually is easier, more convenient uh, for the baby to be in the parent's room. So somewhere between four and six months when you're usually not feeding at night and those habits are, you know, you're wanting to establish the good habits as well. I'm sure the advent of all the baby monitors and stuff might make that easier as well. So it's not, you're not ignoring them per se. It's just, Correct. they can't hear you. <laughs> Correct. Well, and I think, again, it depends on the person. Some people are light sleepers and whoever coined the term sleeps like a baby never slept next to a baby. They make a lot of noise. Amen. And uh, they, for myself, I did not sleep well when my babies were in my room. I can see that. And I'm wondering with the baby monitor, is that harming parent sleep more than helping baby health? You know, probably to some degree, because now they have the outlet monitors. Where, I was wondering if you'd bring that up. Oh, yeah. goodness, where they have a pulse ox on, um, on it, Tom. And oh, so, my goodness. Is that yeah. is that TMI? Is that too yes. much information? Oh, yes. So when they first came out, there, I probably had one or two patients that I actually hospitalized before I realized, okay, this thing is not always work. It is F F right sometimes. Um, and I had a couple of patients who maybe they picked up their bronchiolitis early because their post ox was dipping, but it's not always accurate. And so, um, and it goes off a lot. And so, but that, yeah, so that monitor, I, I digressed, but that I think, um, you know, certainly I'm, for some families, I think it probably gives them more comfort. Okay, so baby's out of crib in a little bed, little older, two, three years old, whatever. What advice do you have for good sleep at that age? So for a two to three-year-old, you, you want to continue those same consistent habits. So that bedtime routine that we talked about is going to be even more important. They need you know a good 30-minute bedtime routine, an earlier bedtime, an overtired two or three-year-old is the hardest child to put to sleep. So when, when they're overtired, they don't go down well. So they need an early bedtime with a good routine and they must still be napping at two to three years old. So it, it, establishing that good routine and keeping it going. Michelle, are there ever, you know, there's, there's times, and I'm not sure they're joking, but pa patients come in and they want medicine to help their kids sleep because, you know, grownups take medicine to sleep sometimes. Is there ever a time when that's appropriate? I've only done a melatonin for someone to reestablish their sleep cycle. So if I have either a teenager or maybe a, a five to 10 year old, I've never done it under that. Parents do it a lot more. I've never recommended it under that. Um, only if their habits are off and that might help them with their circadian rhythms fall back asleep. But I feel like it's just like anything. You don't want to establish a, a outside source to help you sleep and it's yes. just routine. So I don't recommend medications. Okay. They're, they're five years old now. What's different about sleep routine then? And at what point should naps end? So that's a very common question is about naps. And so four to five, somewhere between age four and five is naturally when naps should end. That is a very common thing is they outgrew their naps and they're three or four, maybe a four-year-old, but a three-year-old absolutely needs a nap and their behaviors will be, um, they'll act out in the middle of the afternoon when they should be napping. Mm. Uh, so really being consistent about that nap is so helpful. But between four and five, most four and five-year-olds are going to be no longer needing a nap, but they still need 12 to 13 hours of sleep. And so they're going to need to be go to bed pretty early. You know, Michelle, for, for listeners who have hung in through here and they've realized that their baby is no longer a newborn and now it's a 12-year-old, uh, <laughs> what's the biggest risk for a 12-year-old having trouble sleeping and how can we prevent that? So probably most everybody knows this, but it's going to be screen time and devices. And so that is going to often distract kids. They're going to keep them up. 
It's going to often, they know the lights on the screens are better than they used to, but um, your melatonin release is affected by your screen time uh, watching. Uh, but they often, a 12 or 13 year old, they're going through puberty too, and they think they need to stay up later, but they still need quite a bit of sleep for their growth. And so that routine, routine, routine is important. So what, what do you recommend if your early, your young teenager, you know, junior high is, uh, is only getting eight hours of sleep a night? What, what happens? Well, I will talk to the, the, the adolescent about the reasons why it's important And every child is going to be a little different on how much sleep they need. So I'll talk about sleep hygiene as well as when you wake up in the morning, do you wake up naturally or someone having to, you know, put the alarm on 10 times to wake up? So are you rested? So maybe a 12-year-old would be okay with eight hours. I'm sorry, most wouldn't. But if they're rested, they're not falling asleep in the car and they're performing well, I, you know, it might be okay, but if they don't meet all that criteria, then we'll talk about why they need more sleep and that their growth. Most kids want to be taller and growing, and and it really has been shown to affect their growth if they're not getting oh. enough sleep. You know, Michelle, one of the things we've talked a lot about different tips. Are there? We had alluded to a couple of books. Even are there go to resources that you could recommend across the board? So I um, like a lot of the data we talked about is uh, from a book called Crib Sheet by Emily Oyster. It's more for the newborn and the um, toddler sleep. But my favorite book is How to Solve Your Child's Sleep Problems by Richard Ferber. He's sort of the sleep expert and it's a, not a very big book about sleep. Um, so that's, and I like Baby Wise as well. Uh, I think it's just more learning about routine. There is another happy baby, happy sleeping, I think is another one. So those are be the, the four that I would recommend. And Michelle, what do you want listeners to most remember from this episode? So consistency is very important around baby sleep, their routine, watching for their cues. You also have to know your individual child, each baby, know, each baby and child know their kind of likes, dislikes, and what's good for them, but also being patient with yourself too um, and not being rigid, I think, with your routine, knowing that you know each day is a little bit different. Um, and then if you're having problems, reach out to your doctor. <laughs> Michelle, this was an incredibly um, rich episode packed with practical help for parents and their kids. Thanks for being with us again on Dr. Doctor. Thank you. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, and Tom found a way to get a sleep trivia question that was applicable to our listeners, and I've got a a bonus secondary question. Good, because I don't have the answer to your question, so I hope you do. (laughs) (laughs) The category, parent sleeping position. So what, in a survey of 1,000 adults, was the most common sleeping position? Not desired, actual sleeping position of couples. Was it spooning? Back-to-back, intertwined, no contact, or face-to-face? Now, Andrew, you can see the answer. Did this surprise you? Uh, No, it did not. It did not surprise me. And with 46% leading the way was no contact. Yes. And the second bonus question is, what percent of the couples agreed on the best sleeping position? (laughs) And the survey says that less than 5% agreed. Actually, he made that up. I just made it up, like most statistics. But Tom looked his up, and that's why we keep him around. Second second place was spooning with 25%, and then back-to-back with 15%. So almost half were no contact. And is it really a surprise? Because if a mother or father, usually a mother has more contact with their child. They're probably contacted out and just need their space. <laughs> yes, I, I could see that, especially with the little ones. So, Andrew, from this uh, content-rich episode, what are your top three takeaways? Well, number one takeaway, I think, for listeners is that each family kind of has to look soberly at the pros and cons of the different ways of raising kids. And people will reasonably pick different things. So some people who I've met, I'm, I'm going to describe them as breastfeed or bust. People <laughs> doing a strict schedule will not support breastfeeding in the way that more of a demand feeding will. 
Um, I've met a lot of people with maternal depression, postpartum depression. And we know from the studies that if you do a scheduled regimen, maternal depression goes down from 70% down to 10%. So depending on what factors they have at play, everybody has to make their own decision, but we don't all have to agree on what's best for our family. Uh, my second point is that it, I was struck by one thing. Michelle said it takes about three nights to do the sleep training. And so that was something that stuck out to me. Um, yeah, a lot shorter than I would have anticipated. Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid of crying it out for days and days and days. And uh, it, it appears based on Michelle's experience, that's not the case. And, and my third recommendation is uh, I, I would go out on a limb and recommend against the cry it out with you in the room watching your baby cry it out. That sounds like something that terrorists would do. So I recommend, Andrew Mulally recommends against that. That's my third takeaway. So you never did that with any of your seven children? No. If if you're committed to letting your baby learn to self-soothe, walk around the house, step outside, and don't make this harder. You're not a better parent for working harder. You're a better parent for doing a good job. That's, that is great advice. So Andrew, at what age are your kids sleeping six hours? You, you know, we, we have, my wife taught me about baby wise, like your experience was, that was not my experience prior to getting married. And so we, we enjoy good sleep after about three months. Okay. That, and that sounds reasonable and to expect it before that is not very common, according to Michelle. No, I'd say uncommon. Michelle mentioned the weight. There's a big thing with the weight. Yeah. And, uh, and I would say a lot, a lot of times it, it lends itself to having big families when you sleep. Awesome. A new baby for me is a, a three month investment of bad sleep. I've met a lot of people where it's a 10 year investment of bad sleep <laughs> and uh, I have seven kids <laughs> so that I couldn't do that. So to each their own, you know, Andrew, Thanks for uh, helping put together another great episode here. And thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, just check the website bonus links and information in our post for each episode. Click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.